Let's say that you're with a group of friends and someone tells this great joke and uh, everyone bursts out laughing, laughing, everyone except you. Um, you have no idea why the joke is funny. Uh, now, you might laugh that, uh, that kind of uncomfortable, polite laugh, if you know what I mean. It's the <laughs> yeah. You're lost. You have no idea what joke they just told, and, uh, and probably you feel embarrassed and maybe even a little lonely, and I think everyone's been there. Well, some of you might feel that way about covenant theology, uh, or at least some aspects of it, and I want to be sensitive to that. I don't want you to feel lost. I want you to enjoy the warmth and the goodness and the practicality of this stuff, but you may feel somewhat lost. Covenant theology isn't simple, but it's significant. Covenant theology is new for a lot of you. I struggled with aspects of it, and I still struggle to make sense of certain details, and so I understand if you feel a bit confused or even conflicted. But even little advances make a huge difference. So please don't be disheartened. Uh, be encouraged. It, it takes some time to understand the warmth and the goodness and the relevance of Reformed theology, especially considering that it's often caricatured. Covenant theology has deepened my thinking, my comprehension of Scripture, uh, my intimacy with God, and I'm convinced that it can do the same for you as well. So lean in, keep an open mind and keep learning humbly, test and discern everything that I say, everything that you hear against scripture itself. And I think covenant theology can help you best understand how the pieces of scripture fit together to reveal for you God's glory, God's beauty in his one redemptive story. So let's review some. I told you last week that my goal was to show you the glory of Christ in the Mosaic Covenant, uh, which is ultimately a gracious covenant. That's still my goal. I've been trying to show you from Scripture that there is one covenant of grace unfolding uh, in increasing detail in beauty from Genesis 3.15 on. In the Old Covenant, Christ was dispensed in prophe uh, promises, prophecies, sacrifices, circumcision, Passover, and other types and ordinances. In the new covenant, Christ is dispensed in preaching, the Lord's Supper, and baptism. The old and new covenants are the same in regards to grace and salvation, but different in terms of administration. This is why Reformed theology sees an inseparable connection between Passover and the Lord's Supper and circumcision and baptism. Also keep in mind the distinction between God's moral, ceremonial, and civil law. We looked at Genesis 15, Deuteronomy 7, Exodus 2, 3, and 6, which I hope prepared you to enter in more fully and more clearly to the Mosaic Covenant. I asked you last week, can you see Christ in the Mosaic Covenant? An important question, and I hope today helps you even more to see Christ in the Mosaic Covenant as we unpack the actual Mosaic Covenant. So first, I'd like to share with you a helpful perspective on the progression of the Covenant of Grace. The progression of the Covenant of Grace. Remember that God promised Abraham that all the families of the earth would be blessed in him. 
and that all the nations of the earth would be blessed in his offspring, referring to Christ and all believers united to him by faith. Dr. Ligon Duncan laid out the striking progression of God's covenant community in simple and helpful terms. Abrahamic covenant, family. Mosaic covenant, national. New covenant, transnational. Notice how God's plan of redemption unfolds in increasing scope. Increasing scope. The visible expression of God's covenant people expands. Family, families of a nation, families from the nations. In the Abrahamic covenant, God entered into covenant with Abraham and his children. God's covenant people were visualized in a family. In the Mosaic Covenant, God entered into covenant with a nation of families, national Israel, including children. In the New Covenant, God is in covenant with families from the nations, transnational. The covenant of people of God is visualized today in a multicultural, which is so beautiful, a multicultural family, the visible church, children still included. For those of you wrestling with covenant infant baptism, we've approached that uh, topic before, consider carefully how the one covenant of grace unfolded throughout redemptive history in increasing clarity and breadth. Family, families of a nation, families from the nations. The same promise given to Abraham and his children is still given to believers and their children today, Acts 20. So considering the covenant of grace expanded in breadth throughout redemptive history, if after thousands of years children have been removed from the visible covenant community of faith and are no longer entitled to the sign and seal of the covenant of grace, where in Scripture did God remove children from the covenant? You won't find it. If the old and new covenants are one covenant of grace, simply administered differently, then why are children no longer in and no longer entitled to that which signifies and seals they are in and they had received for thousands of years under the old covenant administration of the ongoing covenant of grace? So some food for thought, food for thought to, to, to get your mind going on those things. So we, we continue, the Mosaic covenant advances the covenant of grace and presents Israel now as only a partial fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. The, the final and most glorious fulfillment is Christ and those united to him by faith alone. So in the Mosaic covenant, we see God honoring his promises to Abraham and his promises to Christ. Christ is in the Mosaic covenant. Okay, so let's continue to see God's amazing grace. Grace in Exodus 19. Moses and Israel received the law at Sinai with the promise of Christ in view. The Mosaic Covenant is a codicil, not a word I use, uh, you could say addendum, okay, to the Abrahamic Covenant or the Covenant of Grace. It adds detail to it. Uh, after the exodus, Israel camped in the wilderness before Mount Sinai. Only one person, one person went up to God, a mediator between God and the people. Moses, as mediator, foreshadows Christ, the mediator. That's grace. 
That's grace. God spoke out of Sinai to Moses, who then spoke to the people. Moses as prophet foreshadows the greatest prophet, Jesus Christ. That's grace right here in this narrative. And listen to what Yahweh told Moses to tell the people, the people of Israel. Exodus 19.4, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. That's beautiful. I brought you to myself. That's God's description of his redeeming grace. Like a majestic eagle uh, bears her little eaglets up to breathtaking heights. God himself bore up Israel to bring them to himself. That's redemption and that's adoption. That's grace. That's God remembering and honoring his gospel promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then after reminding Moses of his sovereign grace, God told him, now therefore, now that is, now therefore in light of my sovereign grace and deliverance, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. That's gospel and conditional language, a response that they needed to have. It's God calling his covenant people to obedience to his law, not to be redeemed, but because they were redeemed. Ligon Duncan made the point that the Mosaic Covenant was essentially saying, keep God's law and you will be what God made you to be. Now, from the Abrahamic Covenant, we know that the nations were the long-term redemptive view. Beyond Israel, the nations were in view. However, in Exodus 19 and following, the covenant is made with one nation, Israel the temporary and national expression of God's covenant people and a partial fulfillment leading to the final fulfillment, Christ. Christ and the families of the nations that are united to him by faith. Referring to the Mosaic Covenant, Dr. R. Scott Clark said this, that temporary national covenant expired with the death of Christ, end of quote. I think there are multiple things at work here, but maybe to simplify this beautiful connection to the Heidelberg, I want you to think of guilt, grace, gratitude. It's on our church sign. Guilt, grace, gratitude. Just just think about that for a moment. First, guilt. Israel was sinful. Israel, they, they existed in a wicked world after the fall. Israel was also enslaved in Egypt, enslavement typological of bondage to sin, and Israel knew both realities. Sin and bondage to Egypt. Second, grace. Israel had the promise of the Messiah. The the promise was to Abraham and his children. And so Israel came from Abraham, and, and they were a partial fulfillment of that promise. God delivered Israel from bitter slavery to honor his gospel promise to Abraham. Israel knew that. Christ fulfilled the promise, the prophecy. Out of Egypt I called my son, And that was partially for Israel, but we see broader terms that that was about Christ. Out of Egypt I called my son. Christ is the true and perfect Israel. 
That's grace. Now third, gratitude. God gave the Mosaic law when? After he graciously delivered Israel from Egypt. God didn't say, do the law and be delivered. He said, I have delivered you, now do the law. Very, very different. Guilt, grace, gratitude. Guilt, grace, gratitude. Guilt, grace, gratitude helps us understand Scripture, helps us interpret what's actually going on. So thank you, Heidelberg. Helps us make sense of a lot of Scripture. So God gave Israel the Mosaic law not as a means of salvation, as the Judaizers, Galatians, connection to that, mistakenly believed, but for several other good reasons. Let me go through some of those reasons. Number one, to give Israel a clearer view of his holiness. The Mosaic law makes it absolutely clear. God is holy. Number two, to explain for Israel in greater detail the covenant of works or God's moral law expressed in the Garden of Eden, which unlike Adam, Israel was unable to keep. Adam was able to keep it, chose not to. Israel was not able to keep it because they had no ability to keep it. But it was expressing what that was in more fullness. G.I. Williamson wrote this, This does not mean that God gave Adam the law in an externally revealed and codified form. What was right for Adam and wrong for Adam is precisely the same as that which is commanded of and forbidden us by the Ten Commandments. Do you understand? The Ten Commandments just flesh out more what Adam always had to do but chose not to. Adam had law. Noah had law. Abraham had law. But the Ten Commandments give more detail to that moral law. God wasn't giving law to Israel as he did in the exact same way to to Adam because Israel was sinful. It was after the fall. They, they, they They knew that they were unable, and God knew that they were unable to obey his law perfectly. But in the Mosaic Covenant, God nonetheless was giving clarity to the law which he still demanded of humanity. God gave Israel conditions and promises of blessing if those conditions were filled, if they actually obeyed what he gave them at Sinai, which somehow, there's mystery here for me, still connects to Israel's national status and their their blessing in the land. But God knew Israel would fail. He wasn't surprised by that. He gave them, and this is an important connection, he gave them the sacrificial system as a gracious foreshadowing of salvation through bloodshed and Christ's substitutionary atonement for the forgiveness of sins. Those bulls never removed an ounce of sin. They only typified something that the final sacrifice Jesus Christ would remove. It's all about him. They would fail. They needed that promise, which leads to number three. God gave Israel the Mosaic law to show Israel how sinful and unholy they really were. All right, the first use of the law. Paul said it like this in Galatians 3.19. Why then the law? Why did God give the law? And his answer was, it was added because of transgressions. Added because of transgressions, sins. The Ten Commandments, they were a gracious gift to Israel because they alerted Israel to their sin and guilt. They told him, this is what you're not doing. This is what you're incapable of doing, which brings us to number four. The Abrahamic covenant gave the gospel of Christ to Israel. 
And the Mosaic law did its part by exposing Israel's desperate need of the Messiah promised in the Abrahamic covenant. The Ten Commandments did not in any way introduce a new way of salvation. God gave the ten to describe the righteousness of the promised Messiah and to show Israel that they really needed the Messiah to come and to fulfill the law for them, to do what they could not do. The law was to shatter them, to humble them, and to yearn for the Messiah who, to come and to do exactly everything that God told them to do in the law. The Ten Commandments did something else for Israel. Number five, God gave the Mosaic law to liberated national Israel now to explain for them how they were to respond to his gracious election and deliverance. God was saying, I chose you, you. And now that I have delivered you, now now that I have made you free to worship me, this is how you do it. This is how you worship me. This is how you honor me. One source explained it like this, quote, in Exodus 20, Moses is given the Ten Commandments which summarize all of the details of the law that follows. The law is given after salvation from slavery and is not how people earn their favor in the eyes of God. The law did not justify. Rather, it was the means by which the people maintained their covenant fidelity. Here's here's what to do to maintain your covenant fidelity. Well, we know how that ended. Miserably. The whole story of Israel, miserable failure. Israel didn't keep the law and they broke their covenant fidelity. They needed Jesus to come. And then the, the, the little devotional, it added this. The final aspect of the Mosaic covenant is the ritual of the law itself. The people of God maintained their covenant relationship by obeying the law. However... The inclusion of sacrifices in the law code demonstrates that God knew that the law would not be kept. These sacrifices covered disobedience for a time and pointed to the one who by his perfect obedience would keep the conditions of the covenant for us and thus sustain our relationship with God forevermore. Oh, the Mosaic covenant pointed to the the Christ who would be the righteousness that we need. That's hugely important to understand about the Ten Commandments. Israel entered, the whole Mosaic law, Israel entered into covenant with God, and then they failed miserably. It was the offspring promised in the Abrahamic covenant who would come and who would keep the covenant. Jesus earns our acceptance in the covenant By his covenantal faithfulness. He's the one that did it. Praise God for Jesus. I want you to think about question two of the Heidelberg, if you know it at all, and apply it to Israel. Here is what Israel needed to know in order to live and die in the joy and comfort of the promised Messiah. First, how great their sins and misery were. God's law helped Israel grasp their sin and misery. Second, how they were delivered from all their sins and misery. The promise of Christ given in the Abrahamic covenant and expanded in types and shadows in the Mosaic covenant helped Israel grasp God's deliverance through the Messiah. Third, how they were to be thankful to God for such deliverance. 
And God's law helped clarify for Israel how they were to express their gratitude as his chosen people. God set the terms of the covenant. Israel entered into covenant with God. Exodus 19.8, this is how Israel responded. All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Really? All of it? You're going to do all of it? They thought that they could do all the law? I don't think they got it. I don't think they understood. That sounds self-righteous to me. Did they keep the covenant? No, they failed miserably and were eventually what? Exiled out of the land. God took them out. Covenant breakers do not enjoy the blessings of the covenant. Who kept the covenant? Jesus Christ did. Christ obeyed God's law. Christ is God's treasured possession. Christ is the preeminent priest. Christ is the perfect Israel who fulfilled the terms of the Mosaic covenant. So God graciously chose Israel as a nation to be the visible expression of his covenant people for a time, promised them temporal and national blessings upon obedience for a time, and then after they failed and made a wreck of everything, God sent his only son to do everything that they failed to do, earning eternal blessings for his people united to him by faith. The, the Ten Commandments describe for us what Christ is like. They tell us what the Messiah is like and what his eternal kingdom is like. Thinking this way will then help you when we get to the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew. Matthew where he gives an exposition of the law. Interesting, the, the, the New Testament applies this mosaic language to the church. 1 Peter 2.9, it says this, but you, so, so take this as this is you, this is about you and all believers, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Doesn't that sound old covenant? Because we are the fulfillment the church, Israel was for a time. The church is for all time. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses is believing Israel and us today. God's choice of national Israel displays his sovereign and gracious election, which credits and exalts God's kindness alone. I think John Calvin explains this beautifully, and I want to share this with you. This is a little bit risky because it's a long quote. I hope you don't get lost in it, but it's just so good. So hang in there, please, and listen closely. Hang on every word. See if you can make the connections of how this is helpful. This is what Calvin said. With the view of gently inviting the people to obedience, he first recalls to their recollection the blessings of their deliverance and then promises that the blessings of the future would be not inferior if they on their part honored their deliverer with the piety and gratitude which belonged to him. He recounts the two parts of his loving kindness. First, that he had exerted his tremendous power against the Egyptians. And secondly, that he had marvelously brought his redeemed people through the sea and the mighty wilderness as through the clouds and the air. For this was an instance of his inestimable grace that he had made war against a most powerful king, had afflicted a most flourishing nation, and had devastated a land remarkable for its extreme fertility in order to succor a body of despised slaves. For there was no dignity in them, 
who first of all were strangers and moreover abject herdsmen and devoted to base and shameful slavery, whereby God might be incited for their sakes to destroy the Egyptians who were illustrious in glory, in wealth, in the richness of their land and in the splendor of their empire. Wherefore, it would have been detestable in gratitude not to acknowledge their great obligations to God. What he adds in the second place, that he bear them as eagles are wont to carry their young as reference to the constant course of his paternal care. Moses will hereafter use the same comparison in his song, and it often occurs in the prophets, but he mentions the eagle rather than other birds. In my opinion, Calvin says, that he may magnify their difficulties and thus commend his grace. For eagles lift up their young ones upon high places and accustom them to look at the sun, thus the people, as if carried above the clouds on the wings of God, had surmounted every obstacle, however great. End of quote. Calvin was eloquent. Exodus 9 is significant. Yahweh told Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. You see, God deals with his people through a mediator, a prophet. The people were to listen to Moses and they were to believe and follow Moses. Is this not typological of Christ, our mediator and our prophet? Moses typified and foreshadowed Christ, the mediator and prophet of a better covenant, a new covenant. Moses consecrated the people. He forbade Israel to touch the mountain. The third day brought a terrifying scene, thunder, lightning, a thick cloud, a thunderous trumpet blast. Israel trembled. So kids, have you ever been scared at night when it is dark out and outside of the window it is flashing and it is crashing and you're like, oh man, are we going to be destroyed in this place? And you get scared. Let me assure you of this. It was way more scary at this mountain. Way more scary, kids. Even your parents would have been quaking in their boots, not knowing what to make of this fierce and intense scene. But in the terrifying scene was grace. Verse 17, listen for it, folks. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. They met God from a distance, though, far off. Sinai was wrapped in smoke because Yahweh descended on it in fire. The whole mountain trembled greatly, and Moses the mediator went up to God where the people could not go. Oh, folks, God is holy. God is intense. And our mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ, he takes us to meet God. We come to Exodus 20, grace in Exodus 20. Yahweh, the covenant-making and the covenant-keeping God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, spoke his holy and good law to Israel. Yahweh gave them 10 words, or we could say 10 commandments. Exodus 20, verse 1 says this, and God spoke all these words saying, God spoke to the people from the midst of a fire, a fire through Moses, a mediator. 
And in verse 2, before God states the moral law and likely in the fashion of ancient treaties of the day, God states who he is, the preamble, what he has done, the historic prologue, and what is required of the people, the treaty stipulations. So the preamble, what did he say? I am the Lord your God. I am Yahweh your God. Wow. God hadn't chosen the other nations for himself. He chose Israel, one nation, to be their covenant-making and covenant-keeping God. Now the historic prologue. What had God done? Brought them out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. They didn't rescue themselves. They did nothing. God chose Israel. God spared Israel. God rescued Israel. God delivered Israel. Jesus delivered Israel, Jude, from bitter slavery by his sovereign power alone. Why? Because he wanted to display his glory. That he does it on his own. He doesn't need our help. And and to take a people for himself to worship him in spirit and in truth. Why? Because he made a promise to Abraham. That's why. God always, always, always keeps his promises. Then the stipulations. God gave the Ten Commandments. Do it. The moral law. Israel needed to keep the Ten Commandments to keep the Mosaic Covenant. The people were afraid. They trembled. They stood far off. God is holy. He's unapproachable for sinful human beings. They needed Moses to mediate for them. Another glorious foreshadowing of Christ who brings us into the presence of a holy God by granting us his righteousness so that we're equipped to come into the presence of God. After giving the Ten Commandments, God gave many, in some cases, confusing ceremonial and civil laws that came out from the Ten. Uh, Gave them to national Israel, and those laws then later God alone abrogated. You don't need to do those anymore. They were for a time. Put down the stones, remember? Go ahead and eat bacon and lobster if you enjoy. Mmm, thank you. God's moral law, however, stood firm. The ten stand firm. Israel said to Moses, verse 19, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. That's the holiness of God. And listen to how Moses responded, and I think this confirms for us why God restated to a certain extent the covenant of works here in greater detail. Verse 20, Moses said to the people, do not fear, do not fear, For God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. And there it is. And I think that's both the first and the third use of the law. His law awakens a fear in us of his holiness, and it deters us from sin, and it shows us how exactly to live a holy life. And verse 21 says, the people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. Understand, the people were far off, not approaching God. No, no. One, only the mediator went to God, and that's a picture of Christ, the preeminent mediator who alone is righteous and able to approach God in the fullness of his holiness. No one else can. Who can go before a holy God? You? Me? Israel, who? Christ. Christ alone. 
Christ alone is able to bring us to God in a way that we are not killed, not incinerated immediately by his glory. He grants us his righteousness through faith so that even you and even me can approach the holy God in worship and intimacy and glory and love. We can approach the holy God through Christ. Oh, how much greater is Jesus than Moses. Amen? Exodus chapter 20, verse 22 through Exodus 23, verse 19, explain how the Lord wanted the Ten Commandments expressed within theocratic national Israel. A lot of stuff in there, scratching your head at some of it, most of which were temporary laws, like killing children who cursed their parents, and laws regarding slavery. Now, before I go on, some people, they see God in the Old Testament as if he is this angry, malicious, vindictive, um, like tyrant, nasty tyrant. Well, that's who he was in the Old Testament. And, and then in the New Testament, God is, is now this great lover and all of that. They're not reading their Bibles, folks. God is immutable. That means he never changes. Right in the middle of the Mosaic law, God says this, for I am compassionate. That's Exodus 22, verse 27. I am compassionate. Okay, grace in Exodus 24. In Exodus 24, the Mosaic covenant is confirmed in a weird, intriguing ceremony of blood. Um, Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and 70 elders of Israel came up to the Lord with Moses, but they had to worship from afar. Only Moses, the mediator, was able to come near to the Lord. Christ's shadow is right there as, as this is happening. And verse 3 is striking. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules and all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. There it is again. There seems to have been a legal aspect to the covenant, Mosaic covenant, conditions, and certain blessings tied to those conditions. But once again, Israel failed. They never kept the covenant. They quickly diverted from their commitment. But all along the way, God's preserving a remnant by his grace. A remnant. A remnant. Why? God made a promise to Abraham. The Messiah would come from the remnant. God sent his only son who said in his own way, all the words that the Lord has spoken, I will do. I will do. And he did. He did all of it with perfect beauty and scrutiny. I mean, he knew the whole law and he did it all. Instead of confidence in themselves, could Israel have shown a little bit of confidence in the mediator that God would send to do it for them? They, they should have put confidence in that promise of the Messiah who alone could do the law for them. Now, let me ask the question, how does this apply to your life? If you think theology is just up here and it's missing you and it has no relevance, you're missing it. How does this apply to your life? Our God is a covenant-making and covenant-keeping God. Well, what does that mean? I, our God always remembers and keeps his promises. 
Always. If he says that he's going to do something for you, dear brothers and sisters, you better believe God's going to do it for you in full. Glorious things. He'll do it. Covenant theology, it uncovers hope and it helps you fight anxiety and fear. This is theology that you can put to use in battling fear and anxiety and hopelessness and making sense of this broken world that throws us all into disorder. Covenant theology is an anchor. It promotes joy. It promotes confidence in God. Our covenant making and our covenant keeping God has a good plan. Do you believe it? And he is in control. Do you believe it? And he is working it out all for his glory and what? Your greatest good. Do you believe it? That's what scripture teaches. Can you see Christ in the Mosaic covenant? Moses built an altar and 12 pillars representing the 12 tribes. Some young men offered burnt offerings and they sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. Moses baptized, you could say, or sprinkled the blood of the oxen on the altar. That signified bloody substitutionary atonement. Ox dies, you don't. And it's pointing to something. It signified Christ who is bloodied in our place. Moses read the book of the covenant to the people. Again, Israel said, all that the Lord has spoken we will do and we will be obedient. Brazen words. Moses sprinkled blood on the people as an outward sign, as a sacrament, if you will, to confirm the covenant that they made. There's signs and seals that come along with covenants. We've gone through a lot of that already. And Moses used these words, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Folks, are you making the connection? The blood of the covenant? Does that sound familiar? It should. Folks, many years after that, Jesus said at the Last Supper with the wine in his hand, This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. What is the blood of oxen compared to the blood of the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world? Can you see the striking unity and continuity between the old and new covenants? There are differences, sure, sure. But look at the unity and continuity. It's there. Can you see Christ in the Mosaic Covenant? And Exodus 24, 9 through 11 is a beautiful scene of grace God condescended and he communed with his people. And this event at Sinai foreshadows the glory of the new covenant where we commune with Christ over a meal. Please listen, don't miss this. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu and 70 of the elders of Israel went up and they saw the God of Israel, a vision of God. There was under his feet as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay a hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. They beheld God and ate and drank. A gracious and delicious meal with their covenant God. Brothers and sisters, God's moral law existed in the Garden of Eden and afterwards, but Sinai makes it explicit. God said something amazing to Moses in verse 12, come up to me on the mountain and wait there that I may give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandments which I have written for their instruction. 
Adam, Noah, Abraham, they, they all had law. But in the Mosaic Covenant, Israel had the law in print on two tablets written with the finger of God. That was progressive revelation. And all the ceremonial and civil laws flowing out from those Ten Commandments, all the tabernacle formalities, all the sacrifices were types and shadows of the one final and sufficient sacrifice of Christ. And to think there is a better covenant in the new covenant. The law is written, not externally upon tablets of stone, but where is it written? It is written internally on the hearts of God's people. God writes his precious law on the hearts of his people. This is grace upon grace upon grace. John 1.17 says this, For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Moses is the lesser mediator of a lesser covenant. And once again, Christ has supremacy in a greater covenant than new covenant. Can you see Christ in the Mosaic covenant? Do you love the Christ of the Mosaic Covenant. Now there's more to say, but I'd like to end with a quote from Dr. Scott Swain. He's the president of RTS Orlando, and I hope that Dr. Swain is able to kind of pull some pieces together. So this is an important uh, statement here that I think might tie some loose ends up for you, hopefully. This is what he says. While the Mosaic Covenant is the initial fulfillment of the Abrahamic Covenant, it is not the final fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. The Mosaic covenant was a temporary administration of the covenant of grace, destined to be made obsolete. The law was one of God's good gifts, but it was a gift destined for replacement by God's greater gift in and through Jesus Christ, the gift of the new covenant. As the initial fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant thus bears a temporary, shadowy relationship to the new covenant, which is the final, everlasting fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. Okay, now that last line is critical to covenant theology. This is what he says. The Mosaic covenant, what we're just covering, thus bears a temporary, shadowy relationship to the new covenant, which is the final, everlasting fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. The new covenant is tied directly to the Abrahamic covenant. The gospel is there and all along the way. When you see the inseparable connection between the new covenant and the Abrahamic covenant, many beautiful things emerge, including a much deeper understanding of Christ, even inside the Mosaic covenant. This is why we spent time, like a lot of time, on the Abrahamic Covenant. If I've lost you, go back. Listen to the Abrahamic Covenant and see if you can't see the connections that Scripture is giving to this. Can you see Christ in the Mosaic Covenant? Can you see his beauty and power and grace inside of covenant theology? He's there. He's everywhere. He's on every page. And so may the Spirit of God reveal to you in greater detail and splendor this glorious Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this somewhat difficult word because it takes a lot for us mentally to tie the pieces of all of this together. I have no doubt that there are those sitting out there, God, and even myself in certain aspects that, are just, that, that we can get lost in some of this. But God, you've given your scripture to us and organized it around covenants. That's plain in the story. The New Testament talks a lot about covenants and ties it right back to the, to the Old Testament. 
So God, we have to know something about covenants to even understand your scripture, to even understand your self-revelation to us. So I pray for grace. Please be patient with us thick-headed humans who can't make sense of all of this and get confused easily. You don't get confused, God. You made it quite plain in scripture. Help us to see what you have written there. Help us to value the covenant structure of Scripture. Help us to see how this helps us make sense of all the pieces that tie Scripture together. You are gracious to us, God. You bear with us in our weakness and in our iniquity and sin and our confusion. And you still love us. So help us to simply see Christ in the Old Testament and most specifically in the Old Covenant. And help us to see how Jesus is so much better, how he's the fulfillment of this covenant of grace and how he is a better mediator. In Jesus' name, amen.